Welcome back to WBAI and to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics that matter to you. You just were listening to Let's Talk with John Kane. I'm Jeff Simmons, your host of Driving Forces, and welcome back. Happy New Year to our listeners. The phone lines were lighting up over the last hour, so during the second half hour today, if you would like to weigh in on anything that we're going to be talking about, please give us a call at that point. The number, by the way, in case you need it, is 212-209-2877. I want to, again, thank you for tuning in and making WBAI a part of your lives. We're grateful to be up and running again and look forward uh, to a great year ahead. Now, I was off the last few weeks, and frankly, it was really clear. I took my uh, road trip to Chicago, Milwaukee, Columbus, and uh, Cleveland, and it was really clear often how much of a bubble I feel like I live in here in New York City, overhearing a number of the conversations uh, uh, about support, actually, for Donald Trump in a number of these areas. Uh, I did not engage in any arguments. I really just listened at points because I wanted to hear how people were justifying uh, uh, their views. Often, I didn't think that they were watching some of the same stations or reading the same outlets that I do uh, because I'd been following the impeachment process. And it didn't seem like they were citing any of the credible witnesses when they were having these discussions. I'm really curious. Uh, from those of you who are listening this afternoon, what you've thought about this impeachment process, how you feel that Nancy Pelosi has handled the articles of impeachment that are uh, going to be delivered to the Senate about the uh, shrinking field of 2020 presidential candidates. We had another presidential candidate, uh, former housing secretary and mayor of San Antonio, Julian Castro. Uh, also announced that he was dropping out of the presidential race today. Uh, that brings us down to 14 candidates right now, so most of whom will not be on the stage uh, in the middle of this month at the next uh, debate in Des Moines. Uh, but also what happened while I was away, and I had been following this uh, closely, we had the, uh, the attack in Muncie, New York, uh, during Hanukkah. Uh, where a man has been now charged with uh, uh, attacking a number of individuals inside a rabbi's home, uh, seriously injuring five, one of whom, if you read the papers in the last 24 hours, uh, is still in very critical condition. Uh, and earlier today, I had attended a news conference at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, uh, a living memorial to the Holocaust, uh, where Congressman Max Rose had pulled together a number of, uh, of New York City's congressional delegation members to be able to speak about, uh, one of the efforts, uh, that they are undertaking to be able to, uh, address these incidents that seem to be uh, significantly on the rise. So I invited the congressman back on the show. He's been on once before. It is a pleasure to have Congressman Max Rose back here on WBAI. Welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you again for attending the press conference today. So talk a little about your announcement, the details of what was announced today. Yeah, so first of all, I think that we have to put into context the incredible severity of the crisis that we are facing today. Um, we had seven members of Congress there uh, standing up, um, and each and every one of those members, in light of the spike in anti-Semitic attacks over the last uh, 
uh, year, has constituents who have said the following. I'm afraid to go outside with my kippah on. I'm afraid to speak Hebrew in public. I'm afraid to go to synagogue. I'm afraid to congregate with my fellow Jews in celebration of the high holy days or other special occasions. This is what's happening, not only in New York City and New York State, but throughout the country, and something needs to happen. Tweets and thoughts and prayers are not enough any longer. So what we announced today um, is the culmination of an effort that's actually been underway since April, which is when the New York delegation called on an, uh, an increase in the nonprofit security grant, which is a FEMA grant program that provides funds for schools and churches and mosques and other places of religious observation to uh, take, take care of security enhancements and pay for security guards and cameras and things of that like. And today we announced that in the most recent appropriations bill, this was increased, um, a 50% a 50 increase. Um, up to $90 million, with also a, a um, confirmation that the majority of this funds will be used for high-security urban areas, the places that are most in need. The second announcement that we made is that we will be holding workshops throughout New York City to make sure that New York City-based religious uh, and faith-based organizations uh, carry out the best grants. Uh, possible for FEMA so that so we can get what we are deserving of New York can get its fair share and one of the one of the questions that had been asked and it was very insightful by a reporter from CBS uh, and you had a very good response to this had been you know uh, congressman a lot of these incidents aren't necessarily taking place inside of some of the institutions but out on the streets so how does this funding assist some of those institutions address that well, first of all, uh, let me preface this by saying that there is no silver bullet, that we have to engage in a multifaceted, whole-of-government, whole-of-society approach to counteracting this rise, this reemergence of virulent anti-Semitism. But we should also note that uh, this is truly a holistic uh, policy prescription for these faith-based uh, institutions. They can pay for cameras that not only face inside the um, institution, but also face out onto the street. They can pay for security guards who can help ensure uh, security in the larger community. They can pay for uh, barricades and other types of additional construction to the, to the um, uh, synagogue or church or mosque. But let's for a moment talk about the other things that we need to do. I'll list out a few of them. One is, is that we certainly need an additional charge at the federal level of domestic terrorism. Uh, it is not enough to charge these individuals with hate crimes. These are ideologically motivated acts of terrorism, and we need to charge them as such. That is not just to allow for us to have an additional punishment but it also allows for us to charge people with providing material support to domestic terrorist organizations. We are seeing a spike, an emergence of neo-Nazi organizations. And whenever someone advocates on their behalf, whenever someone sends a neo-Nazi organization money, whenever someone recruits on behalf of a neo-Nazi organization, that is, not provide, that is not free speech. 
That is providing material support to a terrorist organization, and we should be able to charge them as such. We also have to continue to crack down on social media companies. Much of this radicalization is occurring on, uh, you know, on the interwebs now, and social media companies have to play their part in terms of cracking down on this content. Um, so there's a long, there's a litany of things that we have to do at all levels of government, and everybody has got to rise to the challenge. Why do you think a number of these social media companies have not fully addressed this now? Well, look, I think that these social media companies are more accustomed to times when uh, perhaps a decade ago or maybe even less, when we looked at them as the unicorns, you know, the new exciting companies with valuations of $100 million or so started by people in their 20s who uh, wear hoodies. Now, that's not what they are any longer. These are, this is big business, and they have a social responsibility akin to the responsibility of companies like General Motors to have uh, deployable airbags that deploy 100% of the time. Uh, we, and there's so many other industries where the actors have social responsibilities. So they're going through an evolution. They have to be pushed uh, into doing things faster. Um, profit cannot be the only motive. They have a responsibility to all of us. And I had also read that you're calling for a congressional hearing on January 15th. Can you talk about that? Yes. You know, one of the worries that they, that Jewish communities have, and rightfully so, is that elected officials will comment um, in light of attacks, and then they'll move on to the next shiny object. Well, we are doing a hearing on January 15th as a bold statement that we will not move on from this issue, that uh, hatred and rising anti-Semitism and violence against Jewish communities is something worthy of congressional oversight, congressional consideration, um, and that we are going to bring experts from uh, uh, organizations in the nonprofit sector that are observing this trend, analyzing it so we can get to its root cause. And we're also going to bring officials from the government side at both the state and federal level to get, you know, the, the most potent magnifying glass available to us, which is obviously congressional oversight, to get an understanding of what is being done and what else needs to be done. Um, this hearing will not just be a flash in the pan. It is the next step, to, uh, you know, along the lines of what I think is a years-long effort to continue to address this crisis. So we're talking about the federal response, but locally in New York City and New York State, do you feel that enough has been done or that just too often people are saying our thoughts and prayers, you know, and then uh, folks move on to the next, as you say, shiny thing? No, look, I will not think enough has been done until there is no longer a they're Jew in New York State and New York City, and we're not there right now. I, I certainly um, commend any efforts at the city and state level to increase law enforcement presence in Jewish communities, but I think there are more changes that need to be made. One is, is that uh, you know, we cannot have this increased law enforcement presence just be a flash in the pan. Uh, but the second is, is that the... Uh, you know, the, the NYPD has recently established a new task force aligned towards this. I do think that that needs to be replicated by other 
local law enforcement agencies that can look at the rise of white nationalism and uh, neo-Nazi movements and anti-Semitic movements um, and can address it from a whole-of-government approach. Um, and there's also, you know, there, there certainly need to be changes made to these recent bail reform laws, which has allowed for perpetrators of these anti-Semitic hate crimes to appear before a judge and be back out on the street committing more crimes that very day. Uh, there, there needs to be reform. So uh, this afternoon, uh, there was a piece, or rather this morning, a piece that uh, appeared on WCBS radio in which the victim of one of these attacks had basically said uh, that the rise in violence against Jews is recalling past horrors. And it's like, and, and he had said, it's getting back to the days when my grandparents were in the ghetto. Does it feel like it is not safe in many areas to be openly Jewish in New York City? Yes, yes, that is certainly the way people feel. And it, to see these, you know, statistically proven spikes in anti-Semitic incidents, I understand why people feel that way. Um, you know, the, these are, this is not a foreign concept. These are people uh, who are calling my office, calling me personally, my friends. Um, it is, this is a scary scary moment. You know, my great-grandfather fled to New York City from Eastern Europe, fled anti-Semitism more than 100 years ago. Um, and that he did that because New York City was more than just a city. New York City was a beacon. It was, it was a place that where people could be protected from this, the most, this, this most ancient form of hatred. Uh, we cannot allow for New York City's best days to be behind us. And that, that is especially the case for the Jewish community. So your future this year, you're up for re-election. Uh, you represent a district that um, uh, largely had gone for Donald Trump, and uh, you recently had cast your vote to impeach. So I expect in the coming months, as, as you're facing a Republican challenger, this would come up, uh, you know, that this might come up on the campaign trail. How do you expect that this will factor into the race, and what do you want to say about what led you to uh, to reach your vote on impeachment? Well, look, I swore an oath to the Constitution. Um, when I was sworn into office just about almost exactly a year ago. Now, that was the second time that I swore an oath to the Constitution. The first time was nearly 10 years ago when I first enlisted in the United States military. I didn't swear an oath to politics, and I certainly didn't swear an oath to my reelection. When you ask someone, whether it's on Staten Island or anywhere across the country, why do you hate politicians? And believe you me, everybody hates politicians. Well, one of the principal reasons or one of the principal things that people say is, you know, I just hate people that are poll tested. I hate people that only do what's necessary for re-election, and they're, they're not showing integrity. Well, integrity is why I ran for office, and it's why I want to continue to serve. When I think about integrity, I think about the soldiers who I served with who put their lives on the line and put their differences aside in service of this country. And so long as I am blessed and privileged to be a United States member of Congress and to be the representative of Staten Island and South Brooklyn, that's the way I'm going to be an elected official, and that's the way I'm going to lead. And during the press conference today, you, you had been asked, and, and I, I thought you had a very insightful answer, so I wanted to bring it up. You had been asked about 
you know, the surge or the rise of hate crimes that are happening in this country. And, you know, the reporter asked the question was, is Donald Trump to blame? You know, I, I just want to get your your response to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, we stood up today uh, not as Democrats, but as Americans. This rise of anti-Semitism and these most recent anti-Semitic attacks, it's not a Democratic issue. Um, and, and so we are calling on the president today for New York City to get its fair share of these nonprofit security grants. We have mosques and we have synagogues and we have churches that are desperately in need of security enhancements. And we are looking to the president as a partner um, because, again, this is an American issue. It's an American issue, not a political issue. So, Congressman, as we wrap up, I do want to go back to this original topic, why you had the news conference today. If anyone is listening and they're affiliated with a synagogue, a mosque, a church, a community center that wants to apply for, uh, for a portion of this $90 million, where should they go? How should they find out more information? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I urge you, whoever's listening, if you're affiliated with an organization, please call my office for additional information. Call your local elected representatives, um, and we will be, as I've said, carrying out workshops across the city um, to make sure that people, we want the best applications in the country for this grant to be coming from New York City because New York City and its faith-based organizations are deserving of its fair share. Congressman Max Rose, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI this afternoon. Thank you so much again for having me. So at that press conference, we heard from a number of our congressional representatives, uh, Grace Mang, Greg Meeks, Elliot Engel, Yvette Clark, uh, also Hakeem Jeffries, uh, and they and they had some very strong words. So what I would like to do, and I apologize if the audio is not the strongest, uh, but I do want to play you a clip uh, where Max Rose introduces Congressman Jeffries, uh, who's a member of the House Judiciary Committee and House Budget Committee and chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. So you can hear what he said this morning. Jeffries, who has not only been an extraordinary leader and um, supporter of religious freedom here in New York City and New York State, was an extraordinary leader across the country. With that, I can... Thank you, Max. As we bring uh, this to a close, I want to thank uh, Congressman Rose for his tremendous leadership in convening us together and helping to lead the fight uh, to increase the security grant assistance to a record level, along with all of the members of the New York uh, delegation. Now, 75 years ago, the horrors of the Holocaust were first revealed to the world. 75 years ago, at the conclusion of World War II. And while we've come a long way in America and throughout the world, the events of the last few weeks and the rising tide of anti-Semitism reveal that we still have a long way to go. And it's not just that anti-Semitism continues to live in the soil of Europe, but we know that anti-Semitism continues to live in part of the soil of America. And we will stand together to make sure that we eradicate this cancer. Dr. King once said during the height of the civil rights movement that in the end, what we will remember is not the words 
of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. That's why we, as a New York delegation, representing every single one of the diverse communities of New York City, stand together to say, we will stamp out anti-Semitism, we will stamp out hatred, we will stamp out intolerance, no matter what it takes. We want to say to anybody who's contemplating an anti-Semitic act, cut it out. You will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. You will be ostracized. You will be punished. You will be held accountable. Cut it out. Now we've come together to talk about the $90 million that is a record level of funding for not-for-profit institutions and also to say to all of the religious and community-based religious institutions that we're going to work together with you, as Congressman Rose indicated, as a delegation to fight to make sure you get access this funding. We want to make sure that you can access it in Staten Island, the district that Max Rose represents. Access it in five towns. Greg Meeks represents. Access it in Crown Heights and Midwood that Yvette Clark represents. On the Upper East Side that Carolyn Maloney represents. In Forest Hills that Grace May represents and in Riverdale and of course Monsi that Elliot Engel represents along with the Brighton Beach and Mill Basin and Seagate communities that I serve. We all stand today with the Jewish communities throughout our great city. I've got the honor as an African-American to represent the ninth most African-American district in the country and the 16th most Jewish. And there are folks in Washington who say, I came, is that complicated? I say, no, it's the best both worlds. It represents what New York City is all about. And with the leadership of Max Rose, we're here today to stand together to say we will denounce it. In terms of the rising tide of anti-Semitism, and we will take action to stamp it out. In the Baptist church that I grew up in, favorite scripture says that suffering may endure during the long night, but joy will come in the morning. There are people who are suffering, suffering because of attack, suffering because of fear, paralyzed by anxiety, but we will not rest until it's morning time for every single community in New York City. Again, you are listening. That was uh, Hakeem Jeffries. You're listening to WBAI's Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I'd like to also wish our listeners a happy new year. 
those remarks from Hakeem Jeffries were at a news conference earlier today uh, uh, in the wake of uh, what they're saying is more than a dozen incidents recently of uh, anti-Semitic incidents here in New York City and New York State. Uh, obviously, you uh, heard or learned about the incident that took place in Rockland County in Muncie. Uh, recently and in the wake of that, uh, uh, this has received considerable attention once again. Uh, the NYPD, for instance, is reporting that anti-Semitic incidents in the city are up 21%. Uh, and in the wake of that incident and the uh, other incidents that have taken place, the NYPD has beefed up uh, its presence in a number of Brooklyn's Jewish communities in Borough Park, Midwood, Bed-Stuy. Uh, there have been incidents uh, as, uh, as recently as today, incidents in Crown Heights and Williamsburg. The city is also rolling out a number of other initiatives in classrooms. For instance, they're talking about a hate crime uh, curriculum and other measures such as new light towers. Uh, and uh, assigning officers to be in houses of uh, worship. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was hoping to have on New York City Council member Mark Levine, and due to uh, uh, the incident that had taken place in his district with the Barnard student uh, who had been killed, we had to postpone that interview. So uh, I'm, I'm happy that uh, the councilman has been able today to uh, to return uh, to driving forces. Uh, councilman Levine is the former chair of the New York City Council's Jewish Caucus. He's still a member of the caucus, and so I wanted his perspective, not just on what uh, you know what this means, why we're here, you know, seeing these incidents or hearing more about these incidents, but how he feels the city should respond and if the city is doing enough. So, Councilman, welcome back to WBAI. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Sorry that we have more bad news to discuss, but I'm really pleased to have a thoughtful dialogue with you on this. And, and I guess at the root of all this, and you know, I, I don't know if you had a chance to read the Errol Lewis column in the Daily News today, which is about, you know, it's not just one, there's not just one solution. We all have a part to play here. You know, why do you believe we're seeing more of these incidents? What's motivating these to take place? Well, I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. There is much to do for government leaders, people in my role for sure, and we'll talk about the real policy changes we have to implement. But the work of intergroup relations also has to happen amongst real New Yorkers on the ground through faith institutions, through synagogues and churches and mosques, building partnerships. Um, that's the way to cut through the ignorance. We don't have enough of that today. You, you, you know all too well we have – often diverse communities on the same block that don't interact with each other. And that, is, that, that creates a breeding ground for bigotry. And the work of overcoming that is on all of us, not just elected officials and government leaders. Um, this trend, uh, a frightening trend in which we've had double-digit increases in anti-Semitic uh, hate crimes every year now for the last four years, um, can be dated to, to 2015. There is no doubt that um, the rhetoric that uh, then-candidate Donald Trump unleashed and has uh, continued to spew as president uh, has helped contribute to a climate in which expressions of anti-Semitism have become normalized. I also want to stress the extent to which the causes are more complicated than that. It is actually true that most of the perpetrators of these crimes New York City don't have a clear ideology. Um, many of them 
appear to be struggling with severe mental illness. Uh, some are kids who have barely engaged in politics at, at all. But tragically, uh, they have been susceptible to a message of anti-Semitism. And uh, it's true that the attacker in Muncie appears to have a long-time struggle with schizophrenia, but it's also clear from the evidence that's been reported that he has been trafficking in some of the vilest uh, anti-Semitic uh, imagery and language uh, and documents and other things that they have found. Um, that he produced. Uh, so uh, we have to attack this on all these fronts. We, we absolutely have to grapple with the challenge of severe mental illness, not depression and anxiety, which is uh, quite, quite a serious problem, which also must be addressed. But underlying these kinds of attacks is more serious mental health challenges like schizophrenia. And that, that, we're not adequately responding to that in New York City. We need curriculum, which helps to teach young people about the history of the Jewish people and all oppressed people and the history of the Holocaust and all genocides. And we don't have enough of that uh, in the New York City public schools. And we need to work towards intergroup relations at all levels through government action and the actions of regular New Yorkers. And one of your solutions also had been to, to tackle this uh, was you, you had sponsored the bill uh, successfully to create the city's new Office of Hate Crimes Prevention. Uh, right. And that... You know, went into effect into effect in 2019, but you know, was it slow to get into you know uh, you know to get rolling? Do you feel that it's been successful in its initial stage? Any concerns? Well, uh, we're not there yet. Um, we we have a very successful strategy that the city has employed in other uh, for other policy priorities. There's a mayor's office to combat uh, domestic violence, for example. Um, on a less weighty topic, there's a mayor's office for media production, uh, mayor's office of Evergreen Affairs. The idea in each case is that we have challenges which span many agencies, and we need to coordinate all the players towards a common city strategy. That is clearly true with hate crimes. This, obviously, the NYPD has a, a critical role, but that alone will not get at the underlying problem. That alone will not prevent these crimes from occurring in the first place. That's going to require the Department of Education working on curriculum in the schools. It's going to require the Human Rights Commission working on intergroup relations. It's going to require the Department of Youth and Community Development focusing on the, on the angle of young people. It's going to require the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene focusing on the mental health uh, angle uh, and, and a half a dozen agencies. And so I was really pleased to, to pass a bill um, in January of, of 2019 to establish this office with the mission of creating a common citywide strategy across these agencies to have unified budget requests so that these, this work is adequately resourced and to collect data uh, to hold our city accountable across agencies. Um, we did pass that bill last January. Um, the, the mayor um, finally hired uh, a, an executive director or director of the office uh, last August, but uh, as of just a few days ago, um, they're still have not fully staffed this office. It's got an office, a staff of seven, and, and uh, three positions remain unfilled. So we're pushing very, very hard to ensure that this office has a mandate, a robust mandate, and a full complement of staff 
to go about this very important work of coordinating across all city agencies in the face of what is clearly a crisis. And and you're saying these things, uh, you know, as uh, we enter 2020 and in the coming weeks, the mayor will have his state of the city and then be rolling out uh, his proposed uh, fiscal plan for the next uh, the next fiscal year. What do you think that administration? What should the mayor consider addressing in his remarks? But also, what should the administration uh, consider for the budget? Look, we do need to make sure that we are protecting vulnerable neighborhoods and vulnerable institutions. Um, uh, yeshivas uh, are prime targets. We created a program in uh, 2017, the School Safety Act, which I was pleased to help pass, um, that has provided for unarmed school safety agents uh, paid for by the city in uh, select uh, yeshivas and other uh, non-public schools. Uh, I want to emphasize that we have profound respect for the sanctity of the constitutional separation of church and state, um, but that there is adequate, uh, ample precedent or a city providing non-pedagogical support uh, to children uh, in non-public school settings. And we believe that the safety imperative justifies uh, our city adequately resourcing uh, these protections. But the program is fairly limited now, and smaller yeshivas of 300 students or less are are not covered in the program. And uh, in Manhattan, in my district, there are many that are not supported. Um, and in other parts of Brooklyn, um, uh, many of these schools are struggling financially. Families are paying $200 a month for kid intuition. And so there is a need uh, for the city to help with security to keep kids safe. This is something that we'll be pushing for in the council uh, for sure. We're also pushing for a rollout of citywide curriculum. Um, not just in a few focused neighborhoods, but we want every kid uh, in every school in the city to get anti-bias training. We want every kid to learn, as I mentioned, about the history of Jewish people and all oppressed people. And, uh, and that doesn't only mean the darker chapters in our history, but also the positive contributions that uh, the Jewish people and, 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 and other uh uh, historically oppressed people have made to culture and science and 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 human development, um, and we we clearly need a robust investment in mental health services uh, for uh, people dealing with uh, the most severe, severe forms of psychosis. That um, is in large part a budget question, and so we're going to be looking for allocations uh, in that area as well. Um, and I want agencies like the Human Rights Commission to have more staffing to get out into neighborhoods, um, to organize intergroup relations and activities that can bring people together who aren't otherwise getting to know each other. Uh, so each of these things is, is going to require additional funding and very much will play out in the budget process in the months ahead. That starts very soon. Um, Mayor's preliminary budget comes out in February. And uh, we'll have hearings on that uh, throughout the, the spring, leading up to a negotiated agreement in June. Councilmember Levine, I want to thank you so much on short notice for appearing today on WBAI. Jeff, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Wish you all the best for the new year. Thank you. Happy New Year, sir. You too. Bye-bye.
So uh, one other point just uh, want to mention. We're talking about, you know, with the council member, what's taking place on a city level. We talked with Congressman Rose about what's taking place on a federal level. But Governor Andrew Cuomo also has weighed in calling this uh, incident in Muncie an act of domestic terrorism. And he also had now ordered state police officers to patrol a number of the synagogues and areas uh, that had been struck by the recent acts of hate. So I want to let you know the phone lines are opened up. The number to call is 212-209-2877. That number is 212-209-2877. I'd love to know what you think about what we're talking about. But if you also would rather weigh in on presidential politics, on Julian Castro dropping out, about who you feel uh, is going to be uh, swiftly moving ahead as we get close to the Iowa caucuses. Uh, if you want to weigh in on Giuliani, which is always a popular topic, or even Bernie Sanders, let me know. By the way, should let you know that this afternoon our uh, public advocate, Jumani Williams, announced his endorsement of Bernie Sanders. And we'll be extending an invite to uh, Jumani to have him back on driving forces early in this new year. So I believe we, uh, Max, we have a, a can rather we have a call. Great. Welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. What's your name and what is on your mind? My name is Celeste Katz Marston, and you, <laughs> Justin, are on my mind as uh, one of the finest, finest broadcasters New York has to offer. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year, Celeste. We miss you here in New York City. I hope the weather's fine in Boston. It is. It is. It's not a, It's not bad. It's not a, like piles of snow up to the second story yet, but I'm sure they're working on that. So I should ask for our listeners who might not know this, how are you listening to WBAI? I am listening to BAI streaming worldwide at WBAI.org. See, you're a dedicated listener. So, of course, folks, this is great because Celeste and I, before most of our shows, would just kind of discuss some of the issues of the day. And she really had keen insight into presidential politics better than I ever will. And so, Celeste, I'm really curious when you, you know, look at who has – I guess, who's been qualifying so far for the next debate where there's only going to be a tiny handful of people on that stage. And then there was the uh, the piece that I had forwarded over to you on CNN, kind of where we see some of these top tier candidates going. What's been your perspective on the presidential race and, and where we're going from here? Uh, my prediction is that making predictions is a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I think a lot of us know this from four years ago or uh, from 2016 when it looked like Hillary Clinton really had it in the bag, didn't quite uh, turn out that way. So uh, there are definitely aspects of the race that are, are going to give us some clues as to who's doing better or worse or who might uh, start showing some momentum pretty soon. But just try to be super, super careful to – to not fall into that clever Jeff Simmons trap of of uh, calling the race right now. Well, the other trap I used to do is asking officials to grade something, you know, give me the, you know, the grade, and they would not weigh in on that. Amy Klobuchar, are you surprised about how far she's come? So, you know, and it seems like she still has moment, significant momentum. You know what? I'm going to be honest with you. It's not because I'm I'm such a crystal ball reader, but I'm not that surprised that Amy Klobuchar is doing well. I think that if you look at sort of the range of ideologies of people who are in that sort of 
top five, top ten, uh, you know, uh, grown-ups table versus kitty table, you know, when, when there started to be these huge deals in the uh, Republican primaries last time, and they had to have so many uh, debate slots that they had sort of a, a grown-ups table and a kitty table for the debate. Um, I'm not surprised to see Klobuchar doing well, because if you look at who else is in that constellation of the top five, there really is a place for somebody like her who can uh, represent sort of a more moderate face of the Democratic Party, who can succeed in a part of the country or parts of the country where Donald Trump has done well, and who does not, certainly she's not out there saying Donald Trump is the greatest thing since God made little apples. I think we're pretty clear that nobody who is a serious Democratic primary candidate likes Donald Trump very much. But she is not sort of representative of the kind of all-or-nothing approach to Trump that I think you might see in some of the other candidates, admittedly candidates who are doing better in at least this ranking for this week than Amy Klobuchar, obviously. We're talking about people like Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren. And Bernie Sanders, just they the campaign announced today, he took in a massive... Uh, taken this last fundraising quarter of uh, more than 34 million. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned uh, in, um, in in a, a few minutes ago was that Jumani uh, Williams just endorsed him. Uh, Rafael Espinal has endorsed him. A number of electeds here in the city have already come out and endorsed him. Do you see that Bernie possibly takes New York City? Look, it's uh – compared to who the other, the uh, hometown guy being... Yeah, I was you know, getting Mike, there. Mike Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, was, uh, I, was, I was seeing where that train was going. Um, <laughs> but no, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Now, look, Bernie Sanders... Okay, New York is, is to call it a bastion of liberal politics, is probably putting it mildly. Uh, Bernie Sanders is or was sort of a, you know, a hometown character for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people in New York know Donald Trump, and for that reason, they may sort of especially hate Donald Trump. So uh, they want to get as far away from him uh, as they can. Now, Bernie Sanders, I mean, the fact that he made this much money represents a couple of things. It doesn't just represent um, that a lot of people are disgusted with Donald Trump and his brand of politics. It certainly means all of that. But just Bernie Sanders has an excellent, excellent ground game in terms of is fundraising operations, small dollar donations have fueled the Sanders campaign in the past, and they continue to do that. I mean, that he was, that Bernie Sanders was able to force a quote-unquote juggernaut candidate like Hillary Clinton all the way to the floor of the convention in Philadelphia, where people were actually throwing hands on the convention floor, and people were, were uh, up in arms saying that Bernie had gotten a raw deal from the DNC, you know, this is not somebody with a small amount of grassroots support. And I think we can tell from our own Mike Bloomberg, who is just getting started, to be fair, and getting started means for him spending $10 billion bucks before he gets out of bed, probably. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you look at the operation of somebody like Bernie Sanders, he has real, he has this real sort of grassroots support. He is not necessarily getting all this money or all this attention from TV commercials. Now, the question is, do those people show up? How is the vote split? Is he able to develop momentum in these early voting states, especially now with a changed calendar where it's not all just about 
Iowa and New Hampshire. We have California moving up uh, pretty dramatically in that mix. It's a it's a different landscape for Bernie Sanders, and I will be interested interested to see how he handles that, um, especially given the other people again in that sort of top five. So I do want to ask you another Bloomberg question, but first want to remind our listeners, if you'd like to give a call, the number is 212-209-2877. Again, that number here at WBAI is 212-209-2877. So Celeste, you covered Mayor Bloomberg's administration for a number of years. What's your takeaway on the type of team that he assembles, the people he surrounds himself with when he's running for office and in office? Well, I think generally the business of Mike Bloomberg is business. And I think that he has he has this sort of acumen and he certainly has the money to attract top talent. And we will see some familiar faces and, and hear some familiar voices in this campaign. You know, 10,000 newsletters a day from Kevin Sheiky. You have Howard Wolfson out there. You have... Uh, you know, Stu Lowe's are making some comments out there. These will be familiar names for people who covered the Bloomberg administration, in my case, all 12 years of the uh, Bloomberg mayoralty. I'm sure New Yorkers will remember uh, how that came to pass with, with some interest. Interest may not be the word, but it's the one I can say on the radio. <laughs> so um, I think Bloomberg knows how to put together an effective team. I think it's also true that history has shown, unless I'm mistaken, correct me on this, that no mayor of New York City has gone on to become president of the United States. Mm-hmm. It's just not a thing. Uh, yeah. Bloomberg has a lot of money. Uh, does he have a rationale? Because that's what I'm looking for in all these people, whether it's this top five in this one article that we're looking at or if it's the entire, uh, you know, the entire chess match uh, of who gets to be the leader of the free world is who's going to make the best argument for why they're the person who can beat Donald Trump? Is Joe Biden effectively making that argument? Is Bernie Sanders? You may like, you know, Bernie Sanders for his uh, convictions, or you may like Elizabeth Warren because she has a plan, or you may like Pete Buttigieg because he's uh, sort of a fresh, new voice and he represents a different generation, but he's got some managerial experience, he's got some military experience, or you may like Amy Klobuchar because she gives you, uh, you know, enough enough democratic principle to be comfortable, but enough sort of of a moderate bent to to be workable. Um, what is Mike Bloomberg giving America that they need, except to say, which he said at that Democratic convention where everyone was so riled up in 2016, um, that he thinks Donald Trump is a con man and a, and a fraud and a fake. He's a New Yorker who has taken on another New Yorker here. Uh, are people nationally and people in New York going to look at Mike Bloomberg and say that his mayoralty and his businesses show that he has a track record of experience running large organizations, making wise decisions? Certainly the guy has uh, an incredible history of philanthropy. Um, of interest in in world health and public health problems. Um, There's no question that Mike Bloomberg has done a lot of things. In this particular instance, in this particular year, he needs to do one thing, which is prove to the American people that he can knock out Donald Trump. 
Has he done that yet? I'm not sure he has, but it's early. So uh, final question before I let you go. January 14th is the uh, next debate, and five candidates have qualified. That's Biden, Sanders, Warren, Klobuchar, and uh, Buttigieg. Uh, what do you want from that debate? As we, you know, I know you're disappointed Marion Williamson is not going to be on that stage, uh, but what do you want from that debate? What do you want to get out of that? I really do, and I, I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, and I Maybe a lot of the people who would be voting in this election don't even know what a record is, which is kind of another <laughs> thing. But that's that's a, that's a whole separate show. We can do we can have a separate episode on that. Um, but I genuinely, genuinely keep emphasizing the same thing. I think if the Democrats are going to have any hope of knocking out an entrenched incumbent Republican president who seems to have a very a very large majority of his party lined up behind him and is uh, raising money at a pretty good clip, uh, the answer is clear. We all have to be looking for the same thing to know what's going to happen. Who is making the argument? Not who has the best tax plan necessarily. Not who is going to make sure that you can, you know, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. These are all vital things, okay? Who's going to protect our national security? Who is going to make sure we have a good education plan? And I might add, um, in in light of what you were talking about earlier, a very, very serious matter, who is going to do the most to make sure that people can walk safely on their own streets, no matter which god they worship or which god they don't worship, uh, you know, if any? I think that somebody has to come out there and make that argument that this is an all-or-nothing thing, this is a zero-sum game, it's this person or it's Donald Trump, it is not both, and somebody has to come out and make that connection with the American people. I think every debate is an opportunity for somebody to do that, and I have seen a lot of missed opportunities, frankly. I am not sure somebody is really making that argument convincingly the American people. And it, it may seem early. It is pretty early, right? We have nine months to go before people actually choose the next president. But every day that somebody doesn't make that argument is a missed opportunity. Well, speaking of opportunities, I'm glad I had this opportunity to speak with you very early into nice 2020. Segue. Yeah. <laughs> nice Celeste, segue. thank you so much for calling in and for being continuing to be a loyal a WBAI listener and a WBAI buddy. Thank you very much, Jeff. Always a pleasure, and Happy New Year, and Happy New Year to everybody at WBAI. Thanks, Celeste. Thank so. So uh, we've got just a few minutes left. Phone lines are open at 212-209-2877. Just mentioned a few moments ago that Celeste is what is known as a WBAI buddy. I am one as well. Uh, this is a uh, – I give a recurring donation. Just comes right out uh, – what's just put on my credit card uh, every month of $5, $10, $20, whatever you decide. But it sustains us. It's, it keeps this programming going. We've been around for 60 years. We want to be around for the next 60. And if you uh, would like to become a WBAI buddy, go onto our website – uh, at WBAI.org and you'll be able to fill out a form on there. Uh, we just finished our pledge drive and we will have another one coming up uh, in the winter. But until then, I still want to make that uh, request of our loyal listeners. It would be wonderful if you could become a BA buddy. And that shows 
uh, the more buddies that we have, that shows strength. Uh, for our programming. Most of us are volunteers here. Uh, we love uh, working or volunteering at WBAI, and we love the engagement we get from listeners. Now, as as John Kane mentioned uh, in his show before this one, he doesn't necessarily agree with everyone, and not everyone agrees with him, but he listens. And that's what I also enjoy. So I, over the last year, year and a half, I've had a number of people call up and tell me they disagree with I've said, what I've said or they did not like a guest. I mean, we had uh, Celeste and I had uh, uh, Representative Peter King on at one point talking about 9-11 um, uh, funding uh, for the Victims' Compensation Fund. And people were upset about that because of his stance on a number of other issues. Uh, and that's what I also want to bring you. I want to bring you guests that you don't necessarily agree with because I want you to then call me and tell us here whether this, uh, not only that you disagree, but why and what also you would bring to the table. Uh, and in the future, I do want to hear from you about the issues that you would like driving forces to focus on. So you can direct message me at, uh, uh, on my Twitter account, which is Jack Heights, J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S. We're also, uh, Driving Forces is on Facebook. It's also, uh, as Forces Driving on, uh, on Twitter. Couldn't get Driving Forces on Twitter. It was already taken. Uh, but please reach out and let me know because over the course of this year, I want to go back to talking about environmental issues, health issues, infrastructure, a number of issues that are of concern. And I want to bring you the voices. As John has said when he was talking about possibly ha uh, inviting, getting AOC on, same thing here. I know we all would love to have uh, her on to be able to talk about her views not just what she has weighed in on, but on other issues that she's not been asked about. And over the course of this year, I also want to continue bringing you a number of the progressive voices because we have some significant election uh uh, elections coming up in 2021 when the majority of our New York City Council seats are, are open as uh, as well. Um, and I believe it's most of the borough presidents, if not all the borough president seats. You've got a lot of uh, and the mayoral, of course. Uh, so in the coming months, I hope to bring you a lot of those voices as well. So I want to thank you for listening to WBAI's Driving Forces. I want to thank our guests today, uh, Congressman Max Rose, New York City Council Member Mark Levine, and uh, our special call-in guest, uh, Celeste Katz. Uh, I know people are calling in right now, but we're about to wrap up, so I'm not going to be able to take your calls. But next week, I will be back at 5 o'clock next Thursday in studio with me will be my co-host for the day, uh, L. Joy Williams, a political strategist, president of the Brooklyn NAACP, and host of the Sunday Civics podcast. Again, if you missed uh, any portion of today's show and you want to hear it, we'll be on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher sometime later tonight. Now, please stay tuned for the evening news with Paul DiRienzo. Rienzo. <laughs>